Welcome to the Alliance Party After Dark, a podcast for the politically aware brought to you by the Alliance Party. Content for this episode was recorded on Tuesday, January 28th, 2020. And a good evening to you. I'm Dan Schaefer, producer of the podcast. This evening, we're talking with Steve Kuzmich, a fiscally conservative and socially moderate independent running for U.S. Congress in the 24th District of Texas. This district covers a largely suburban area between and slightly to the north of the cities of Dallas and Fort Worth. Currently, the district is held by Representative Kenny Marchant, a Republican who's held that district since 2005. But Congressman Marchant is retiring at the end of his current term, so the field is wide open and ready for an independent, such as our current guest. Steve Kuzmich has lived in the Dallas-Fort Worth area for over 40 years. He received his Bachelor of Science degree with a double major in economics and political science from the Texas A&M University in 1991 and his doctorate in jurisprudence from Baylor University's School of Law in 1994. He practiced law over a 25-year span, representing both defendants and plaintiffs in almost every type of civil litigation, including complex business disputes, tort law, and family law. From a political perspective, Steve doesn't steer too far to the left or to the right. He advocates for government solutions when it makes sense, but otherwise encourages the government to step aside so we can solve our own problems. So, Steve, welcome to the Alliance Party After Dark, and I want to thank you for joining us this evening. Hey, thanks so much for having me, Dan, and I look forward to talking to you. All right. So, uh, first things first, um, you know, I gave you a little bit of an introduction there, but um, could you tell us a little bit more? Can you briefly tell us why you're running for the U.S. Congress and what special secret sauce you're bringing to the table? Yeah, thanks for the, the good introduction. You hit on some of it. Um, you know, our, our nation right now is is in trouble and it's hurting, and I think a lot of that is caused by two political parties, Republicans and Democrats, that are, um, you know, dividing our country, and they're dividing it unnecessarily. Uh, they're more and more extreme. And uh, if you're kind of a far right-wing Republican or a far left-wing Democrat, you're, you're lucky. Um, there's candidates for you, and there's always been candidates for you. But I want to be a candidate for more of those people who kind of lean a little bit Republican or lean a little bit Democrat, and then the 40% of people who, are, who identify themselves as independents. Mm-hmm. So you're, this is, is this your uh, first run at a campaign, or have you done this before? It is. It's the first time I've been a candidate. In the past, I've helped a bunch of other candidates run for office. Okay. So you come into this with a little, a little bit of experience then. Yeah, it, it, it helps. It helps. Uh, but it's different being a candidate, of course, and, and being out front. Yeah. Well, what's it like to run a campaign? I mean, what lessons have you learned, uh, both in the past as helping other people with their campaigns, but also in the present? And what sort of information or, or wisdom that you'd like to pass along to our listening audience? Well, um, I, you know, we're, we're running a real campaign is the best way to say it. Um, and and I, I know this from, from running other campaigns. You know, we're, we're serious. We're going to be a well-funded uh, and well-organized campaign to win. Um, we, we, we're, we're, even though, you know, we're an independent, uh, candidate, um, we're doing all the things that the Republicans and Democrats do. Uh, we bought our voting data. I think to be a serious candidate, that's one of the first things you have to do is buy your, your voting data mm-hmm. so you can start reaching out to voters. Um, we've, we've mailed to selected voters. We've done phone banks. We're out there walking, um, over 21 different walkers. Or 21 different walkers. Uh-huh. Uh, we've we've actually gone to 40,000 doors already. Oh and, wow! You know, That's yeah, a lot. Yeah, so re- really running that grassroots campaign. Um, roughly 360,000 voters in the district, though. Mm-hmm. But um, but we plan to hit uh, every house at least once, if not multiple times. And um, you know uh-huh. we we've got all our printing materials. We have door hangers. We have push cards. Uh, we, we've raised money. We've got about 75 donors with an average donation of about a thousand dollars each. Wow. Uh, yeah, we've started our social media. Uh, I'm not too much of a social media person, but we've got Twitter and Facebook up and running and, uh, we have about a hundred endorsements from Republicans, Democrats, and independents. It, it was, it was real important to me to, to build a, a coalition 
of Republicans, Democrats, and Independents, and we're rolling these endorsements out on social media, you know, a few at a time. And we want to be able to say one day that, hey, this Democrat endorses us, and this Republican endorses us, and then this Independent endorses us. Well, that's um, you're getting kind of an early start. I mean, it's it's well, maybe not. I don't know. It's uh, it's January. Um, we have um, um, eleven months or ten months to go, I guess, until the elections. Um, it's really good to getting all these endorsements lined up and getting all the funding lined up because that that seems it, it, well. I know for presidential elections that's uh, probably right on the money, but um, for congressional elections that's really good to get this early start and get those donors and and. Yeah, we we felt that we had to. That was part of the plan from the beginning because, you know, Republicans and Democrats have that party structure around them that we have to build that. We have to build that um, from nothing. Whereas they announce their candidacy and they instantly have volunteers. They instantly have walkers. Um, but most of most of the Republican and Democratic candidates in my district have been at this now for, you know, four or five months already. And their primary in Texas uh, is March, uh, first Tuesday in March. So okay. it's pretty early, Super Tuesday. Yeah, I did some walking in the past and uh, I knocked on, I think, uh, about 500 doors during one election cycle. And that is... A lot easier said than done. <laughs> Your feet will hurt. Yeah, it, it uh, you know, and, and well, actually, what I did, I got my bike and I just started riding my bike around, and uh, that that helped a lot because uh, I mean, they would give me these 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 campaign uh, lists that I would go down or that list the address lists of all the houses, and um, there would be like you know, seventy five houses on the list, and and of course they're not next door to each other, right? So there's a lot of distance between the houses and sometimes you go down a street and then it, it just skips for like maybe a quarter of a mile before the next house. So, um, I, I just, I, I gave up trying to walk it. I just got my bike and that seemed to help a lot, but still that's a lot of doors to knock on. And was that walking for one of the primary elections? Yeah, that was, uh, no, it was actually, it was walking for, uh, for, um, a regular election. A, um, um, you know, that, that it was the 2018 election, uh, in, Starting in, I think it was started. I started in like September and October, so it was um, yeah. it was quite it was quite a feat. It was a lot more difficult than I thought. But you know, the great thing was, you know, I, I live in the St. Louis area here, and um, I was hitting some like semi-rural areas, and and um, I just um, most people are not home, but the people that are home, I get into conversations with them, and and um, it was just um, a lot less intimidating than I thought. And people are actually, um, you know, they're very informative and uh, very informed on things. And it was overall a really positive experience, but uh, it sure, it sure takes a lot of energy. Well, everybody is worried about doing it the first time they, they go. Um, you know, it's intimidating to knock on somebody's door and just, just talk to them. Um, but it is invigorating in that uh, voters are so nice. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, w w when they'll come to the door, when they answer, um, they're really engaged. They're smart. They want to talk to you. Everybody, everybody, even if they don't agree with you, even if they say, oh, I'm a Republican, I only vote Republican or a Democrat, and I only vote right. Democrat. They're still very nice people. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was, it was actually a very positive experience. So, um, you, you, oh, go ahead. If I can just throw in, you know, what, what you learn is that we're not as divided when you talk to voters as when you watch TV. When you oh, watch yeah. TV, yeah and you put on MSNBC or CNN and Fox, you know, you think, boy, we're sure a divided country. But when you just talk to your neighbors, it's not so bad. No, no, it isn't. I was, uh, it, it, that's exactly my experience too. I thought, oh my gosh, it's going to be like a war out there if I happen to knock on the wrong door or something like that. But uh, no, even the people that didn't want to talk to me, um, they said, nope, I got my mindset. Uh, thank you very much. And then, you know, still, you know, nobody like slamming a door in my face or, threatening me with a shotgun or anything like that. It was actually, uh, it was actually very well. It, it was, it was, it was a very good experience for me. So Same if, experience here. Yeah. if I may move on though, um, so you are running as an independent. And, uh, so let me ask you a question then. Why do we need an independent party in this country? Yeah. Well, look at the two parties that we have, the two primary parties. Um, they're, they're dug into their positions. They're in their trenches. And because of that, they're not coming up with, with solutions. They're not governing. Um, you can go issue by issue. And we're missing out on so many opportunities to, to get things accomplished. But the main reason that we need an independent party is because 
the voters want it. Um, you know, 40% of voters say they're independent. And, uh, you know, when, when you go uh, in, into certain groups, like 44% of millennials, 39% of Gen X say they're independent. Um, and, and where else can you think of a situation in, in this country where there's only two products in the market, Republicans mm-hmm. and Democrats, 40% are screaming for another product, and 40% are screaming, hey, we're independents, even though we don't have candidates to vote for. Yeah. Um, so, so the voters want it, and the voters are tired. Uh, when you go door to door, that's the that's the thing you hear most is just their their disgust with politics. Yeah. Well, look at the approval ratings of Congress these days. It's um, in the low double digit low double digit area. Some people yeah. argue it's in the single digit area. Yeah. Uh, if you go to Real Clear Politics and look at the the polling results, um, there's actually an Associated Press poll. I think from two years ago, where somehow Congress got a five percent approval rating, wow. but they're averaging somewhere around fifteen to twenty percent. If only I could hold down my job with a low rating like that. I mean, I'd haven't made. I could go to work every day and just you know play video games or something. And they they've got it figured out uh, with a lot of the things they do, such as gerrymandering and and keeping us divided and not giving us other choices to to keep their job without low of an approval rating. Well, you're, you're dovetailing into another question I had too, which was, um, uh, well, we'll get into gerrymandering shortly here, but I, I you know, talking about an independent party, some people, you know, they, they, they may be independent, but they're afraid of wasting their vote. You know, this dreaded word spoiler, you know, last week I, I talked to, um, Ralph Nader was on our show and, um, the word spoiler really, uh, it, it, it sort of, you know, got under his skin a little bit because he has a definite opinion about these things. So, um, aren't you afraid of people saying, okay, I'm an independent, but I'm just going to, you know, waste my vote. If I, if I actually vote for an independent person, I might as well pick the lesser of two evils. Yeah. And that's what voters have done is they've been picking the lesser of two evils. Um, I, I think the spoiler argument is not completely invalid. Um, I think particularly if you have a candidate, that is a, a far left or a far right candidate, particularly in a presidential election where they're pulling, you know, a, a very small percentage of the vote, two, three, four percent, and they're pulling it just from one candidate. Either they're pulling, you know, just from the Democrats or just from the Republicans. I think you could have a spoiler effect where that person really didn't have a chance of winning. But at the same time, their, their voice in the election is important to have. But um, that's not the, the type of campaign that, that I'm running. Um, so first of all, I'm, you know, not that high up on the ballot. I'm, I'm running for Congress where there's 435 Congress people. So I, I don't think we should be too threatened by one out of 435 congressional seats being spoiled. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm also running as, as a centrist, as somebody in the middle. So I do pull votes um, away from a candidate I'm going to pull them away more from the most extreme candidate, and that's yeah. a good thing. Yeah, um, I mean, if you're in the middle and you're pulling from both sides, then it's hardly a spoiler position, then, is it? Exactly, exactly. And and but I do plan to be a spoiler, and I'm going to beat them both. So it's gonna it's gonna be a spoiling effect for both the Republican and the Democrat. That's the plan. Yeah. Yeah. So we talked a little bit about you know, gerrymandering and this, this sort of the reason why I wanted to set it up with the, with the spoiler question there is because oftentimes the, the so-called spoilers are blamed for, you know, the one, the winning or the loss of other people, uh, of, of other candidates. But, you know, it's, it's things like uh, gerrymandering and, and voter suppression and, and, and uh, just, you know, combination of the ways that our, especially at our state level politicians sort of fix the vote in a sense, you know, they, it's, it's, it's the, uh, it's the proverbial politician picking their voters rather than the voters picking their politicians. And so in such cases, you know, you could come along and say, Oh, it's a, you know, the spoilers, what really threw this election, but it's thrown a lot more and it's controlled a lot more by gerrymandering and voter suppression and such. So, Oh, oh yeah. There's a, there's a Texas district, uh, Texas district 35, which runs from, the northern part of Austin down to the southern part of San Antonio, which if you're not familiar with the area, it's about 135 miles. And that's how the congressional district is drawn. Even though it's a pretty populated area, it's just a little sliver. Hmm. And it's, it's, it's drawn for the purpose of 
you know, making it so congressional elections are not contested so that these seats are safe. Republican seats are safe Democrat seats. And I, I believe that one's actually a pretty safe Democrat seat, um, but it was drawn by the Republicans so they could get an advantage in other in other districts. Sure. So you, you corral them all together into one into one vote and you give up that one vote, but then you get, you know, whatever's left over, which is a lot more votes exactly. for, for the other party. So, yeah. That's, so uh, what, what you have is, is very few of these uh, congressional elections are actually that contested. Um, I mean, the other thing that, that we've had here in Texas, um, which a lot of states don't have, have this experience, is we had straight ticket voting or straight party voting mm-hmm. up until this election. The November 2020 election will be the first election in Texas without straight party voting. Um, and mainly out of convenience, 60% or so would vote straight party. Um, but then even with straight party uh, voting, uh, independents have done pretty well in Texas. So so straight voting is just, just for the record, that's where you can actually go in and, and just tick one box essentially and vote straight line all the way down the line for the Democrats or the Republicans. Exactly. And, and congressional districts or you know, judges or uh, lower or state representatives, um, they're, they're not even thinking about, the voters aren't often thinking about those positions. They're just voting straight Republican or straight Democrat. So that's gone for this 2020 ele- election in Texas. And, and really, if that were still in place, um, it wouldn't be feasible. It wouldn't be, you know, very likely that an independent could win. So that's a big change here. Yeah, it is a big change. And on Missouri here recently, we had this election uh, in 2018 where people voted for um, to, to end gerrymandering. And now the state legislature is sort of playing around with it and trying to you know twist it in a different direction. But the idea is that um, they uh, get rid of gerrymandering by hiring a so-called neutral demographer to redraw the political lines here. We'll see how successful that is, but it's good to see that these things are starting to take root. Anyways, it's it's a start. Yeah, and there's a lot of good groups out there working um, for for these election reforms, pro democracy reforms. So it's it's good to have those people out there doing that valuable work. Yeah, in our previous podcast, we actually uh, had two podcasts um, dedicated to FairVote.org, and uh, they gave us a lot of really good ideas about you know what we can do to you know, end gerrymandering and do things like ranked choice voting and such. So, yeah. um, I, I think the most important thing though, that we can do is, is win some elections that, that we can have a, a new party, uh, like the Alliance party, um, and independent candidates out there that they can win some elections. That's, I think until we win some elections, we're not going to see, um, the real reform that we need. Yeah. Yeah. And the elections at the state level really will fix a lot of these uh, voting irregularities um, because it's really the states that are drawing these lines that that end up, you know, creating these congressional districts that then send members of Congress to Washington. That's right. Yeah. So I have a question here. It's kind of interesting. It's sort of, you know, sort of digging into the into the Republican Democratic parties. But um, what do they do at this point to screen their candidates that do not, you know, 100% agree with their platform? I would just say, you know, for the record, first of all, that you know that the Alliance Party does not have a party whip, which, which was kind of a new concept for me, and, and I thought about it for you know a few days and realized that's probably a pretty good idea. But apparently, the whips inside the Republican and Democratic parties are must be pretty strong or something. What what sort of uh, what do they do to screen out their candidates that don't agree with them? Well, I, I think the whips are, you know, from what I know about it, are, are more as far as how the, the elected officials actually vote. Um, but what I've seen at a local level um, in, in the past when I've held party candidates, um, you know, they have to go to these either Republican or these Democrat meetings, these small clubs that are kind of the um, diehard members of the party, and they interview them. Um, they interview them and they either endorse or oppose them based on whether or not they're willing to stick to a party line. And uh, it's not good enough to go to these meetings and agree with them on four or five things. You need to be all in with their platform 
or otherwise they're going to try to, you know, defeat you in the primary. Yeah. So they use their primary, their primary process to screen out these candidates. Hmm. And then the voter turnout, uh, at least in Texas, in the primaries is so low that you have the most diehard Republicans and diehard Democrats voting. So that's the type of candidate you get. Um, we actually have great election turnout, particularly in my district, for general elections, but very low turnout for primary elections. Mm -hmm. But it's the primary elections that really, I, uh, I think that's where the, ex the only excitement is these days, because once, you know, with, with the heavily gerrymandered districts, you know, the only time voters can really have their input is, is in the primary, because they say, okay, we know the Republicans going to win this district here, so we might as well take part in the primary, so at least we can determine who's going to be on the Republican ticket. Yeah, exactly. And, and then in a lot of these primaries, the voting, the voter turnouts as low as 6 7%, especially in years where there's not a, a presidential election. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. People probably don't realize that that's really where some of the big decisions are going to be made is in those primaries. Right. Right. So. And, um, you know, and again, independent voters, uh, they don't vote in these primaries. Mm -hmm. So their, their voice isn't heard. Um, so then by the time they get a chance to vote in the general election, they're faced with a pretty far right wing Republican candidate, a pretty far left Democratic candidate, and they have to kind of choose the lesser of two evils for them. Yeah, it's interesting. Like in, in presidential elections, they used to say, I mean, years ago, they used to say, you know, when when the candidates are running in the primaries, they're they're appealing to the base. They're kind of running. If you're a Democrat, you're running to the left. If you're a Republican, you're running to the right. But then after the primaries was over, there used to be this proverbial, you know, race to the middle sort of thing. And right. it's interesting in the 2016 election, that didn't happen at all on either side. You know, they just kind of stayed out on the extreme. And that was uh, um, that was an interesting election from the perspective that um, you really, when you go to the polls, it's it's really difficult to decide, you know, which one is going to, you know, be less radical than the other. It, it, it's true. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you 100%. And I think part of that's societal. Um, you know, I, I think part of it is, is social media. Yeah, you used to have the, the proverbial pivot to the middle after the primary by the candidates. But now they're just really staying with their base. That's part of, you know, uh, us having these more extreme candidates. And I think a big part of that is because of social media. You know, when you get on Facebook, when you get on Twitter, um, those avenues tend to reinforce your views as opposed to exposing you to other views. Uh, Twitter, you know, I, I've noticed just getting started that your followers are people who believe what you believe and the people you follow are people who, who um, believe what you believe. So the news feed that you see, the information that you get tends to reinforce your views. So mm -hmm. voters are really starting to get put in these camps too. So that, that's why there needs to be another choice. Yeah. So um, our, our, our political system is broken. As a lot of people say, our broken political system is is what it is, and so what can what can we do to fix it? I mean, we talked about a lot of things already, but what are some of your ideas? Well, I, I mean, I think that's why we need a new party. Uh, you know, we really have a, a great opportunity now that we have this this new alliance party um, that is trying to govern from the center. They're just about a year old. Um, what voters need to do is they need to get behind a new party like this. They need to get behind independent candidates that are, are willing to run from the, from the center. Um, I, I think that's the most important thing. Mm -hmm. Again, I think I mentioned this earlier, but I mean, I just, we need to win an election. You know, we need to win a few elections um, as independents. We need to, you know, have more centrist candidates. Um, and there's also, there's also some groups um, that are working to bring the parties together. And that's that's a different approach to to elect Republicans and Democrats that will work together. But what you're seeing, and then you mentioned it with the, the party whips who keep them in line, um, it, it's not working. Mm -hmm. um, th I mean, there's been some some small victories, but I think for the most part, they're moving further and further apart. So if if we can elect um, some 
independent centrist candidates, it's going to change the dynamic of elections. Mm-hmm. Candidates on both the Republican side and the Democratic side are going to have to worry about voters in the center and and worry more about you know compromise and solutions and working together than just appealing to their base. So what do you think about some of the more procedural things like uh, ranked choice voting, or there's this thing called um, uh, multi-winner congressional districts where you, you know, you combine two to three, maybe four congressional districts so that it sort of erases the gerrymandered lines and then people vote for, you know, three or four candidates within those combined districts. Um, what do you think yeah, about some but- of these ideas? I'm for all of those things. I mean, I'm I'm for ranked choice voting. I'm for ending gerrymandering. I'm for making it easier to vote. Um, I've been to the Unrig Summit. Um, I'm for groups like American Promise that are working to take some of the money uh, out of uh, corporate money, particularly um, out of politics. Those are all things that need to be done. Um, But I, I just think the best way I think those those reforms are going to take a lot of time. I think those yeah. reforms are slow, and I think America is on the clock. I don't think we have that much time. I think we need to change the system quicker, yeah. and um, I think the way you do that is is with a new party and with independent candidates. Mm-hmm. So, the, and, and 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 that's my approach. I mean, that's that's what I'm trying to accomplish. Completely support all those other groups, um, and you know. Mm-hmm. wish wish them the best and um sure um whatever and and if if I'm elected I'm going to carry the flag on all those causes because yeah. they're they're right yeah well there's um you know ranked choice voting just taking that in, in isolation here that um there's been quite a bit of headway made recently I don't know um you know city of New York just adopted it but I understand the entire state of Maine is adopting ranked choice voting for uh, not just primary elections, but I understand uh, presidential elections as well. So it's building up momentum. And I think you're right. It, 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 we have to go a little bit faster. Uh, we don't have that much time, I believe. But, uh, but we need to work on everything it, at once. And, and Texas is probably far from adopting that. I mean, like I said, this is the first election that we have finally uh, just gotten rid of straight ticket voting. And that wasn't even done for a noble reason. That was really done by the Republicans to disadvantage Democrats, and it just happened to work to the benefit of independents. Hmm. Yeah, yeah that, that's well, it's progress, nevertheless. So it, uh, it is progress. It is progress. We, we've been uh, we've been talking with uh, Steve Kuzmich, who's running for the twenty fourth U.S. congressional district in Texas, and we will be back after a short break. The two party system that we've got is broken. The choices are awful. All we see is lies, cheating, deceit. You could say it about both parties. Neither one really stands for anything except acquiring and exercising power. The idea was to give the power to the people or the people who've given the power away. And that's where the system broke. Government and our political system was designed to be malleable. You know, not rigid, not ossified, not always gridlocked. Absolute power does corrupt, absolutely, and that's why the founders set the system up to avoid having concentrated power in the executive and in the national branch. The founding documents are the best, it's the best government so far that we've come up with. Um, We're just not doing it. You know, it's tribalism, basically. If, If you're not in my tribe, then you're a bad person. You could say the sky is blue, and I'm gonna say, no, it's green. I think it's right out of a 1930s era playbook where if you can divide people, make them feel like something's being taken from them, probably pays well for them to make sure that everybody's divided because in essence, it keeps them in office, it keeps them in power, it keeps them employed. The amount of money that's involved in politics, it is crazy. Now Obama's a smart guy, but not even he could, uh, he wasn't going to do it either. And I was like, okay, that's it. If he can't do it, it's not going to happen because uh, that's when I knew that the, uh, the lobbyists and the corporate interests, uh, the outside private interests that really have a hand in making sure that our political system doesn't work, uh, I knew that they had won. And I said, okay, third party is the way to go. What I think we're trying to do here is, is to make systemic change. Yeah, we need the right people, but there's not any one person, any one charismatic personality that's going to bring about the change that we so desperately need in this country. Our biggest goals are election reform, knock down those barriers that have been built 
and the ballot access game by the state governments. Fixing the dark money. Getting good health care out there. We need more women, we need more minorities, we need more occupations and backgrounds. We don't have set paradigms and beliefs. We just want to solve problems. So we're open books, we're data sensitive, we want data, and we want to solve solutions that help the most people. Let's forget about where we disagree. Let's start with where do we agree? Let facts be facts and let truth be truth and afford people the opportunity to go and find the information they need. We require term limits of all of our candidates. Now, if you have more choices and competition, uh, just like any free market enterprise, competition is going to give you a better product. Focus on innovation and really learning on a local level. Free press and educating people in an unbiased way. Protecting and, and controlling the deficit. Respect and courtesy. Honesty through transparency. Openness and transparency. Transparency. I think that's incredibly important uh, in a number of areas, but especially in finances, so that voters can connect the dots. We want to leave this place in a better condition than we left it for the next generations, pure and simple. Not just my children, all our American kids. We need to educate every single individual in this country. So every individual has tools they need to succeed in life. Ultimately, that's what we're doing this for, what we can help the American people be, not what we say they can be, but what they want to be, and we'll get our party to that point. And we're supposed to help each other rise up, enlighten each other, and start by being civil and respecting other people's opinions. There's nobody left. We have to do it. There's right and there's wrong. <laughs> nobody owns it. You know, JFK, I believe, was quoted as saying something to the effect of, we don't need to look for the Republican answer or the Democratic answer, we need to look for the correct answer. And that's the types of conversations we're not having. As a people, are we doing what we should be doing? We're back. We're talking with Steve Kuzmich, an independent candidate for the U.S. Congress representing the 24th District in Texas. And... Steve, speaking of Texas, what is Texas's history with independent parties? Well, you know, we're, we're the Lone Star State. We have a reputation as being pretty pro-independent candidate. Um, we, we tend to be a little leery of Washington, as particularly Washington political parties. Um, even though we've had straight ticket voting, uh, we, we had a gubernatorial election quite a while back when uh, Governor Perry was elected, where there were two uh, independents running, Carol Strayhorn and uh, Kinky Friedman, if y'all remember the Kinky Friedman days. Um, and in that election, the independent candidates combined got 30.5% of the vote. Um, Governor wow. Perry, yeah, yeah. Uh, Governor Perry won the election with 39% of the vote, and the Democratic candidate, uh, Chris Bell, actually got a little bit less than the two independent candidates combined. And that's that's when straight ticket voting was still on the ballot. Wow. So a lot of yeah, a lot of the Governor Perry and Chris Bell votes were just people who hit that straight Republican or straight Democratic um, button and have been doing it for for decades. And that was also you know some twenty plus years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, Texas is also the home of the Perot family, and you know Ross Perot was probably the the yeah. most uh, successful in modern history independent candidate for president. So I think Texas is, is, is pretty ripe for independent candidates. Um, now that they did away with the straight ticket voting, 44 candidates uh, have filed declarations of intent in Texas to run as an independent candidate. Now, not all of those will get onto the general election ballot, um, but that's, that's still pretty significant. Of our 36 congressional seats, um, 27 candidates for United States Congress have filed declarations of intent to run as an independent. Wow, so it's, that's it's, a lot. It's, it's real wow. optimistic. Yeah, that's yeah, yeah. That's so. 44 people have filed. So not all of them are, are filing for congressional districts. I assume some of them are filing for Senate or other. Yeah, districts. I think there's there's a, a few, three maybe for U.S. Senate. Um, there's a number for. Um, the state house of representatives, maybe even a, a state senator or two, and then I think there's even one person who filed to run as a as a judge as an independent. Yeah, that's good. It's a, it seems to be a growing trend, and Texas is um, leading the way. Yeah, and and, and I, I think it's just 
it's in our nature as Texans. I mean, that's, that's, that's the way we are. I mean, we're, we're independent thinking people. Yeah. That's good. That's good. That's encouraging to hear that. So um, if I may pivot at this point, I'd like to start talking about some of the issues that, um, that uh, um, your campaign will be um, dealing with. Uh, I up the bat first would be healthcare. That's a, that's a huge issue. Um, I personally have a passion for it. I believe you do too as well. Um, yeah, I, I, I can talk healthcare with you all night. That, that is one of my passions. Um, just real quick, one, one thing I want to say, um, one of the things we did on our webpage is we've really gone into extraordinary detail on all of the issues. And one of the reasons I wanted to do that, um, it, it really lay out uh, positions and really lay out solutions and compromises and, and ways we can work together is because I, I was going to be picking up support, support from Republicans and from Democrats. That was the goal. That's the coalition I'm trying to build. And I don't ever want one side to say, oh, well, he says this to the Republicans and he says this to the Democrats. I want to be you know, consistent in, in, in my positions, of course, open-minded and, and willing, to, willing to change. What is the way forward with health care? Yeah. Um, you know, there's a lot of a lot of different solutions, and I, I've been looking at it for a long time. I actually wrote a um, article on Real Clear Politics back in 2017 with a Republican, and um, that was with uh, think, Mark Mackey, I believe, right? And RealClearHealth.com. Yes, yep. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and, and um, th- there's a lot of different ideas. In, in and on my webpage, I've got about a. 18 point plan on different things we can do to attack the healthcare problem. Um, but I think the first thing that we have to do is we have to build consensus on healthcare. Um, and, and we need to start with, with things that we can all agree on. So my, my big thing, my first thing is attacking cost. And there's a lot of things we can do to bring down healthcare costs. These are not my ideas. These are ideas that have been out there in the mm-hmm. public sphere for a long time but that our politicians just uh, can't accomplish. Um, so I, I'd love to run through just a few of those with you. Oh, absolutely. Um, I'm, that's, I'm very interested in that because, you know, one of the estimates I've heard recently um, is that uh, it's something like uh, 10K per year per person, $10,000 per person per year is what they're talking about with health care costs. And, and every time I read articles on this, they always conflate health care costs with insurance costs. So I don't know if that's the total or not. Um, I tend to think it's a little bit less than that, uh, my personal experience, but uh, you know, more like 7K per year per person in my personal experience. But um, yeah, let's talk about cost. Go ahead. Right, because there's all those things that uh, health insurance does not pay for, the deductibles and the co-pays. Yeah. Um, th- these are my, my key ones. Um, I think as, as part of enrolling on Medicare, and as part of a ruling on private health insurance, people, while they're of sound mind, need to fill out advanced medical directives for the type of care they want at the end of their life for life-saving care. Um, we waste billions of dollars on giving care to people um, at the end of their life that they don't want. Mm-hmm. And they, they simply you know, didn't make that decision when they were of sound mind. Um, we we need to uh, reduce patent protection on pharmaceutical drugs. Um, it's not just the the time period of the patent protection, but the pharmaceutical companies do a, a number of things to extend the life of patents. Yeah. Um, if, if they can find a slightly different use for the drug, or if they can expand the use of the drug to another um, set of patients, like like uh, children then they can get extra patent protection yeah. um, or they can make slight modifications to the drug. That's really the biggest thing. Yeah. I think um, the term there is called patent evergreening. Exactly. Exactly. So we, we need to stop that, but we also have to keep in mind that, you know, our tax dollars, our education system produced the scientists that came up with these drugs. Um, so we've invested in, in the infrastructure that, allows a lot of these drugs to come to market. So, uh, you know, we talk about high drug costs. I mean, that's something that's going to bring, bring drug costs down. We need to empower lower level care providers to provide more care. Mm -hmm. Um, we need to end physician restrictions 
uh, on ownership of hospitals and surgery centers. We've got a real uh, crisis in this country. Uh, in in rural communities, a lot of hospitals are closing. Yeah, and uh, uh, it's, it's definitely the case out- here in Missouri too. We've had a number of them closing, and they're they're having to drive 100, maybe 200 miles to get to healthcare that they need. It's it's sad. Yeah, and why it's happening is is complicated. <laughs> um, you know, w- one of the reasons it happens is because a lot of rural hospitals they provide the initial care, and that care is. Um, eaten up by a deductible, and then the patient ends up being transferred to a nearby big city hospital, which actually makes more money off the patient. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it, if we had more of a community-based ownership, especially in those rural communities, um, physicians can own interests in, in hospitals and surgery centers, but they can only own partial interests. So I, I would be for taking that barrier um, and restriction off them. Yeah. yeah. Pharmaceutical companies spend about the same amount of money on advertising their drugs as they do on research and development now. And my view has been if, you know, if your doctor doesn't know about the drug, it's probably not a drug you need that badly. Mm-hmm. So I would reduce at least the uh, amount of prescription drug advertising. Yeah. That's a, you're hitting on a, on a uh, kind of a raw nerve with me because I, you know, just going back a little bit about, you talked about uh, universities contribute or individual universities that are contributing to uh, drug research. They, they contribute directly to drug research. Uh, the NIH, I read a report recently that over a period, I think it was 2010 to 2016, uh, they helped do the basic research on over 200 and I don't remember just slightly over 200 drugs, molecular drugs, uh, and, and funding this, this basic research to the tune of a hundred billion dollars, 100 with a B behind it, $100 billion over six years. And mm. I personally, you know, and, and I'm sure you do too, you contribute to things like the juvenile diabetes research foundation or the American heart association or something. So we get our own private money in there, and yet at the end of the day, the uh, pharmaceutical companies, um, they basically tie everything up inside of their own patents, and then they sell it back to us, and and they collaborate. You know, in a in a case of insulin, for example, I've got some experience with insulin. Uh, the three big companies uh, collaborate and raise prices, and. Um, you know, where are we? We, you know, I feel like we've been sort of taken advantage of, you know, not completely because I realize, you know, the drug companies also put a lot of their own money and their own research into it. But uh, at the end of the day, though, you know, we've, we've subsidized, we, the people have subsidized a lot of this research and it seems like we're not really benefiting from the results. Yeah, I agree. And, and, we, and we need to leave, of course, some patent protection in place. We need to give pharmaceutical companies some incentive. I just think sure. it's out of balance right now. And, um, you know, the political parties can't get together or just are not willing to get together and, and solve this problem. Yeah. Well, I think uh, if you look at uh, some of the, you know, go to opensecrets.org or something like that and, <clears throat> and take a look at who's getting the, uh, who's getting the lobbying dollars from, you know, the, uh, from the pharmaceutical companies. And, you know, it just, it just reads like a list of who's who in, in the Senate and, and, in the, in the house. Right. And, and, um, even more money is being poured into the outside groups. Um, the, the so-called dark money. Yeah. So yeah, sometimes you just have to wonder, you know, who are these politicians working for? Are they working for you or are they working for their own interests? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's 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 also about you know getting getting the money out of politics. We we talked a little bit earlier about you know how how these uh, senators and representatives are um, being influenced by lobbyists. But one of the one of the uh, big things, and you being you know versed in law much better than me, I I just I just read law read about law once in a while in an article. But uh, you know, Citizens United, for example, is one of those things that the uh, um, Supreme Court, I think in 2010, made a decision on Citizens United and pretty much opened up the door to um, um, dark money, political action groups and so on to uh, put money into um, uh, into whatever they wanted to in terms of political messaging under the uh, under the guise of uh, freedom of speech. Right. 
if I got but, that right. Yeah, and actually Citizens United is a, is a case that I, I struggle with because I don't like the result of it, but I do like the justification for it or the basis of it. Um, so, uh, you know, it, it is on the basis of free speech, which is also the basis for opinions that allowed us to do things like, um, you know, that allow for flag burning or pornography or the Ku Klux Klan to say terrible racist things. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, they, and they've applied those free speech principles to corporations and labor unions and say that they have the same um, free speech principles, which is pretty consistent with other cases. Um, it, it was a close decision. It was a five, four decision, I believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's it's our First Amendment. It's a pretty important one. Um, so I, I see some of the basis for the decision, but unfortunately, what it's done is the result's pretty bad. So I think there's there's things that we can do to counterbalance it. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, the the biggest thing we could do is is pass an amendment to the Constitution. That's not easy to do, and there's there's the American Promise Group, I believe, who's who's working to do exactly that, a 28th Amendment. Um, you know, but I think there's other things we can do to, you know, do some public funding of campaigns to help balance out that corporate money mm-hmm. in the meantime. But, you know, short of the the court makeup changing in that case being reversed, which probably isn't going to happen anytime soon, yeah. um, where our, our politics is going to have this dark money in it for a long time. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, I guess there's, yeah, certainly good arguments on either side. It's this, at the end of the day, the results are kind of skewing politics in a way. And um, I personally uh, don't know exactly what the solution would be. A, a, um, a, an amendment takes an extraordinary amount of time and, and effort to to try to just reverse one Supreme Court decision. So, when you, And you have to wonder too, you know, some of these congressional races, and we're talking about congressional districts that are somewhere around you know, 800,000 people in a congressional district, um, there's tens of millions of dollars. Um, in, in the district next door to mine in the last election, the candidates, I think, spent $11 million between them, and that's before you go into the dark money that mm-hmm. came into the race. So to, to get um, 250,000 votes, they're spending, you know, $20 million. It's, it's just pretty unbelievable when you look at how much each vote is, is costing them. I, I think you can run an effective campaign without having to spend that much money. Yeah, I believe you're right. You know, it's interesting that, you know, when you watch like the uh, uh, Meet the Press or these, you know, these these uh, political shows where they have roundtable discussions and they don't talk about votes so much. They talk about money. <laughs> and it's like, right. okay, Bernie Sanders outraised uh, Elizabeth Warren by X million dollars. And, and the the uh, unsaid or unmentioned understanding there is that dollars equals votes. And, you know, they're right. <laughs> and, and that's why they do it, because they're, you know, they've, they've got a point there. Well, and, and, and one of the things that the political parties have done, the Republicans and the Democrats, is they've taken the philosophy that candidates come and go, but voters stay, or uh, contributors stay. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and they've started these organizations, particularly, I think, uh, on the Democratic side, it's Act Blue, and on the Republican side, it's Win, Win Red, where, um, the, you know, the donors all donate through these organizations. And therefore, every time a new congressional candidate comes up or a new gubernatorial candidate, those donors are, are there, they're registered, and that money just pretty quickly flows to the candidates. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we had... Uh... And, and, we had Tim Cotton, who's the uh, political um, director at at the Alliance Party, talk about that very thing, and and he said that you know he he came up with an example of one of the candidates that uh, was running in I believe the state of Virginia, and had made a statement that was um, against uh, or it was pro gun control statement, and um, he said you know, the party pretty much drummed him out at that point. You know, he wasn't, you know, and this goes to not only our earlier discussion about, you know, how the, how the parties control the candidates, but also how the money is, you know, the, the idea there was that when that person made a, uh, broke, 
a, a pro-gun control statement um, that uh, the donors uh, turned them off, you know, turned off the money, and that, that got rid of the candidate. And, and, and that's what I'm talking about, you know, one little deviation from the party's platform, uh, you know, on, on, on any significant issue at least, and they'll, they'll weed you out. So it's really hard to find candidates who have, um, you know, like, like I do, fiscally pretty conservative positions, but socially more, you know, moderate progressive positions, because socially I might fit a little better with the Democrats, but fiscally I probably fit a little bit better with the Republicans, which means I couldn't run in either primary. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's kind of sad because I think that's actually where much of America is. I mean, our, our one of our, our campaign slogans or buzz lines is, you know, fiscally conservative, socially moderate. Mm-hmm. And when I say that to voters all the time, I get, well, well, that's what I am. That, yeah, I'm that too. Yeah. And uh, it, it got to the point where, I mean, I'd, I'd have 70, 80 percent of the people, that's their response. Well, yeah, but that's not where the parties are. Yeah, if, if you think about it, that it's kind of American to be that way. You know, you want, you don't want government wasting your tax dollars, but at the same time, you don't want them telling you and your friends and your family how to live your lives. Yeah. Yeah, that really does, that, that really is the American spirit. And um, it's unfortunately been lost, I think, uh, in the middle of these two parties that focus so much on fighting each other, they kind of forget about uh, the person that's in between them. So, yeah. Okay. I, I think we, We've touched on a lot of things. I, I have like a list of like you know twenty more things we could talk about, but uh, unfortunately we're we're coming up on uh, uh, coming up pretty close to an hour at this point. Um, is there any topic you'd like to talk about before we wrap it up? Um, I I just say one more thing on healthcare, mm-hmm. which is um, you know one of the one of the kind of the bigger approaches um, we proposed in that article back in 2017, and that is worked into my platform. We call it kind of a high-low approach, where we provide catastrophic care mm-hmm. um, for for you know those really bad situations in life, and at the same time, you could provide like a health savings account for people to handle their smaller bills, and you can fund that for lower-income people. Um, and, and what that will do is it will change what the health insurance product is. It will make health insurance cheaper as well because. Um, health insurance won't have to pick up the catastrophic care cases. You can even roll those catastrophic care cases onto some sort of uh, Medicare that pays at a lower rate. Um, but, you know, the one thing, the other thing that I want to address is you, you always hear about the, the Medicare for all plans. Mm-hmm. And the one thing that all the candidates don't mention when they talk about that is, you know, private health insurance pays out at about two and a half times more than, Medicare. So if you went to a Medicare for all system, um, you you either have to do one of two things or one of two things would happen. You either have to greatly increase the amount that Medicare pays out, um, or you'd have a bunch of doctors and hospitals and especially rural hospitals um, going out of business and and having a financial crunch because it's private health insurance that pays, um, you know, at higher rates, that allows them to be able to take Medicare and stay in business. Is it that they're paying higher rates, or is it that Medicare is not getting the same rates as the insurance companies? Because I, I know, like, I've I've gotten a number of these uh, explanation of benefits. I call them EOB forms from my insurer. Um, I happened to break my shoulder a couple of years ago and, and went through some medi- medical uh, uh, conniptions and surgeries for that. And I was reading these EOB forms, and it says, yeah, your surgery basically costs, uh, you know, $15,000, but after the insurance discount, it was like $6,000 or something like that. So is is Medicare um, is Medicare leveraged the same way as the private insurance companies? Yeah, so whereas your private health insurance paid $6,000 for that $15,000 um, surgery, yeah. Medicare is, is paying $2,000. Mm. Um, or, or 2,500. So those Medicare reimbursement rates are so much lower than private health insurance. And it varies. It varies by health insurance plan. It varies, um, by the type of test or the type of procedure. I mean, sometimes Medicare is paying out 10%. 
Wow. And sometimes it's paying, sometimes it's paying pretty close, but on average, um, all the statistics that I've seen is private health insurance is paying two and a half times what Medicare pays. Wow. I didn't know that. That is interesting. So you've got all these rural hospitals, particularly that are struggling, but but you've got big city hospitals that are, are going out of business too, mm-hmm. that are trying to get by. Um, and, and then you're going to go to them and say, okay, we're only going to pay you at, at Medicare rates. And, you know, you're, you're going to have a lot of them going out of business. And in some of the rural communities, the, the hospital in town is the largest employer. Yeah. Yeah, like I say, in Missouri, they've been dropping like flies here. We've I don't I I can't recall a statistic, and I, I just didn't write it down in front of me. But it's 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 in the order of over twenty hospitals, rural hospitals that have gone down over the last five years or so. That that you know, and and my wife actually works at a hospital here in in the St. Louis area, and she sees people coming in from over a hundred miles away because they just don't have the coverage out there in in yeah. the rural America. We, we have the same problem in Texas. And, uh, you know, it seems like that's the big debate in the Democratic Party right now, especially at the presidential level, is Medicare for all, um, which some of them are advocating for, or um, some sort of public option. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I, I just don't understand why nobody's talking about the, the difference in reimbursement rates and whether or not uh, hospitals can stay in business. Yeah. That's a really good point to bring up. I was not aware of that. Okay. Well, I, uh, I unfortunately, like I said, we have so much more I would love to talk with you about. Uh, perhaps we can get you on a, on a subsequent podcast here as well, because um, um, I think we could just talk all night, but I think um, with for practical purposes, we have to sort of wrap things up at this point. Well, well thanks. Thanks for talking this much. And yeah, I mean, I, I think that's why I end up running for office is because I've always been able to talk politics for a long time with people. Oh, that's great. Well, you know, and, be, and before we sign off too, I want to uh, mention two things, uh, that article that you wrote, the high low approach for a new kind of healthcare, um, just to give people a, a, an idea where to find that, that is in a website called realclearhealth.com, all one word, realclearhealth.com. And your article was written with, uh, Mark Mackey and it was published uh, almost exactly three years ago, January 30th, 2017. So uh, if people want to look up that article, it's a very interesting read. It's a it's a fairly short read, very concise, uh, a lot of good information in it, though. And another website I'd like to mention is um, Kuzmich for Congress. That's www.kuzmichforcongress.com. That's spelled K-U-Z-M-I-C-H-F-O-R-C-O-N-G-R-E-S-S.com. I hope I spelled that right, correct? Correct. All right, good. So it's www.kuzmidgeforcongress.com, and I really like your website. I It's it's an unusual website because, um, I mean, as far as I looked at like other candidate websites, yours is unusual. It kind of stands out because um, you, you just got to go to the homepage, you scroll down, and you have this section called The Issues America Faces. And I think it's like... Uh, 18 issues I counted that you list out there and you just put your, uh, your exactly where you stand on those issues and uh, no weaseling around or anything. You can just read about it and it's just so, it's refreshing to see this um, just right on the face of it. You just see exactly where you stand on the issues and it's, um, um, it's a beautiful read actually. Thanks. Thanks so much. I mean, yeah, I, I don't understand why well, I understand why they don't, but I think all candidates need to do that. Yeah. I mean, all candidates need to be pretty specific. And, and, I, and I think one of the reasons they don't is because the more you talk about the issues, the more somebody's likely to disagree with you. But that's what yeah. discussing politics is, and that's, you try to find ways that you can solve the problem. Exactly. I mean, you know, it's like it's one of those dumb moments. That's what politics is all about, you know, discussing and compromising and and. Uh, that's uh, I think that's the way the forefathers uh, uh, had envisioned our country to run. Um, yeah, and, and the issues you talk about, I just want to run down real quickly. You talk about the economy, the national debt, taxes, trade, immigration, energy, the environment, and so on and so on. It, it's um, it's a really really good website. So my compliments to you on that. Thanks, and I'd I'd love to come back anytime and talk more about those issues with you. Wonderful, we'd love to have you back. 
Okay, well, let's uh, wrap it up at this point. Uh, thank you, everybody, for tuning in to the Alliance Party After Dark podcast. Uh, please consider subscribing to this podcast so that you don't miss any episodes. Each week, we'll bring you interesting topics from the Alliance Party. You may subscribe on iTunes, Google, or Spotify. All content for this podcast is copyright the Alliance Party. Views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the Alliance Party. This podcast is a production of the Alliance Party, a decades-long movement of fiscally conservative, moderate, accountable, and reasoned independents, former Democrats, former Republicans, and alienated voters who demand that our elected officials work in the spirit of nonpartisanship for all constituents and provide a better future for our country. This podcast was made possible by your donations to the Alliance Party. If you'd like to join the Alliance Party, visit our website at theallianceparty.com. All one word, theallianceparty.com. Drop in and see what we're all about and get involved. Volunteer your time, make a donation, submit an article or blog, or run for office. We'd love to hear from you. I'm Dan Schaefer, producer of the Alliance Party After Dark. And on behalf of everyone at the Alliance Party, have a wonderful evening, a great week ahead, and we hope you drop in for our next show. Be safe and be aware.